Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little-known facts behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We are your tax men of trivia, your captains of the yellow submarine, the pop culture podcast hosts who are truly bigger than Jesus. <laughs> My name is Jordan Montauk. Wow, that got a, that got an authentic hoot out of you. <laughs> I didn't know. Why are you putting that in there? <laughs> it's a reference. <laughs> and I'm Alex Eigel. And we are back for the second installment of our two-part episode about the Beatles' 1966 album Revolver, which is currently the subject of a massive five-disc box set reissue overseen by Giles Martin, son of legendary Beatles producer Sir George Martin, and steward of the band's recorded legacy. Last episode, we explored side one of this, my favorite album of all time, and today we are taking a look at side two, which has some of my favorite Beatles songs ever. What do you think, Heigl? Are there any standouts for you? Angie Bird Can Sing is probably my favorite from this. Um, wow, that to me, that's like a r- relatively <laughs> deep cut. Oh, it's so good. Look, you know I love Thin Lizzy. Mm-hmm. Oh, it makes sense. The harmony guitars on the this. The guitar harmonies. This is like kind of ground zero for that style of guitar playing. And I really love For No One, man. Yeah. I think that song is just... devastating song. It's so good. Just beautiful. Uh, and the rest... <laughs> I really love I, I you, know, you know what I tell you I love Joe Pesci's rendition of Got to Get you Into My Life. Yeah, man, that album <laughs> slaps. Somebody sent it to me and I just I I wasn't even going to dignify it by listening to it and then I put it on and I forgot because he grew up with the Four Seasons guy, so he has a musical background. Yeah, it's pretty good. Check it out. It's on What Pesci's- else does he do on it? Pesci's got pipes. Yeah. Little joke, sure can sing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. He does the fool in the hill, fixing a hole. It's all Beatles covers. Life. It's it's a lot. And he does just to love somebody. He does the Peachy song. Oh, dude, that would probably like actually crush me hearing Joe Pesci do to, <laughs> to love, love somebody. somebody. Uh, I love that song. 
Oh, wow, I did man. not expect that we'd get into a Joe Pesci detour this early <laughs> in the episode. Well, I was lucky enough to interview Giles Martin about this reissue, and I wrote about it for a pretty lengthy deep dive on People.com, the magic circle, why the Beatles revolver is a monument to the collaborative spirit. But if you're into reading more about this era in Beatles history, which if you've come back for a second episode about this, I'm guessing you are, I have several things that I love to turn you on to. There's a fantastic website that isn't being talked about enough called BeatlesBooks.com. And they offer these insanely thorough track-by-track stories of every song. It makes our research look superficial. It's insane. Check that site out. If you're a Beatle nerd, you'll get lost on it for days. I have to tip my hat to the writer of, I think, all the pieces on that site, Dave Rybasewski, is I think how you say his name. Incredibly talented writer. Uh, There's Steve Turner's amazing book, Beatles 66, which is a gripping and thorough account of the most interesting and pivotal year in the Beatles' career. Um, Also, I think it's the most fascinating year in music history, period. Uh, Mark Lewison's day-by-day books of their career are astounding. Anyone in the Beatles realm knows and loves Mark Lewison. He's the top. Rob Sheffield's Dreaming the Beatles is absolutely brilliant, as is all the Beatles stuff he does for Rolling Stone. Whenever there's anything new in the way of Beatle releases, he's always the first one I look to. Uh, Corey Grau, also at Rolling Stone, did a fantastic deep dive review on this box set, as did Dorian Linsky at the LA Times. Uh, In the realm of podcasts, I cannot gush enough about the One Sweet Dream podcast by the wise, wonderful, brilliant, and talented Diana Erickson. Her series coming through Maureen Cleave's profiles of each of the Beatles in the early 1960s. 66 is so incredibly engaging and insightful and really changed my views on so many things as related to the band. Uh, it's a great way to learn where their heads are at as they entered the studios in April of 1966 to make Revolver. So definitely check out her One Sweet Dream podcast. Anyway, enough nerdery. It is time to dive in. We have so much to get to that I'm not even going to give any teaser facts. If you want to get the album queued up and listen to each song as we go, please go right ahead. I hope we'll give you new things to notice and appreciate as you listen. So turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream (laughs) as we dive in. Here's everything you didn't know about side two of The Beatles' Revolver. It is not dying. No, you didn't. Uh, Before we dive back into the track list, I just wanted to give a quick nod to the packaging that contains these sounds, starting with the title, Revolver. Revolver is the Beatles album that I think might have the most alternative title options that were floating around. There were some jokey ones that were nod to recent albums by artists they admired. The Rolling Stones had recently released their album Aftermath, so Ringo suggested After Geography. I wish they would have gone with that one. (laughs) One of the greatest records of all time, just being a jokey pun on a Rolling Stones record. Come on. But I mean, (laughs) Pet Sounds is a terrible album title, terrible album cover. Yeah, I mean, it it probably would have been imbued with all sorts of meaning and mythology if they've done it. I mean, after geography is pretty terrible, but it's hilarious. Uh, They also had Beatles on Safari, which I think was in honor of the Beach Boys album Surfing Safari. Uh, They also all loved the Free Will and Bob Dylan album. They said that was the album that really got them into Dylan. So they batted around the Free Will and Beatles, which is also pretty good. Only if it's all four of them walking down the street with like one of them arm in arm, like Susie (laughs) Rotolo. Yeah. In drag, that would have gotten at the heart of like George Harrison's Monty Python thing of like, yeah, it's it's two of them, and then the other two are in drag as Susie Rotolo. 
But in all honesty, I can't imagine that any of these album titles were seriously considered. The editor of the Beatles Monthly Magazine was with the band in their hotel room during the German leg of their tour in late June 1966 as they brainstormed album titles. Pendulums was one that was considered. And Fat Man and Bobby. Now we're talking. Is, that was, yeah. Uh, an early favorite was Abercadabra, but it turned out that another band had taken that title, which I think Steve is Miller a band? good title. Uh, later. Yeah. <laughs> you know that, speaking of Steve Miller, in 1969, the Beatles had a big fight in the studio when the rest of the band were trying to get Alan Klein to manage him, and Paul didn't want to, and he stormed out. Or no, the rest, I think the rest of the band left him. And he was just alone in the studio and he ran into Steve Miller, who was also in the studio and he recorded a song with Steve Miller in 1969 called my dark hour. He's playing drums on it. And it was, they recorded it together. Like as Paul's like heartbroken, realizing that the band might not make it because they just left him alone in the studio. As with many of us, Steve Miller is there at our darkest (laughs) part. Pick up the pieces. (laughs) So Abercadabra was out. Keeping on the theme of magic, Paul put forth the title Magic Circle, which I think is a really cool title. It kind of mythologizes, you know, the vinyl LP. But John gave it a characteristically surreal twist. He called it Four Sides of the Circle. Actually, that's a pretty good title. Uh, They continued to tinker, and it wasn't until the morning of July 2nd, 1966, when they were at the Tokyo Hilton for their shows at the Budokan, that they telegrammed their label, EMI, and informed them that the title of their upcoming record would be Revolver. It's a pun. Records revolve. But also, in between the two R's on either side of the word, you have Evolve in the center. Which I think is cool. I love the art for this. I love the Klaus Vormann stuff. Yeah, yeah. The Hell cover of a bassist, was... too. Son yes. of a bitch. Yes, yes, yes. Played on a lot of John Lennon stuff. Um, the cover art done by Klaus Vormann, who was a dear friend of the Beatles since their Hamburg days. He lived with George and Ringo in their shared band apartment after John and Paul moved out. I guess right when he first moved to London. Went to work as a musician. And Paul later said during the Beatles anthology, we knew he drew and he'd been involved in graphic design. I must admit, we didn't really know what he did, but he'd been to college. We knew he must (laughs) be all right. So we said, why don't you come up with something for the album cover? And I guess Klaus was in the process of taking over the bass spot in the band Manfred Mann of Dua Diddy fame. Uh, And that spot had recently been vacated by Jack Bruce, who was leaving to join Cream with Eric Clapton. So in the shuffles, he's in the midst of joining this new band. Klaus very nearly declined to take on the assignment, but he went for it anyway. Uh... Klaus Vormann's kind of directive was he wanted to come up with something that would visually convey how different these sounds were to anything the Beatles had done before. And the black and white line drawing that he did bears the influence of this Victorian artist, Aubrey Beardsley, who was famous for his Art Nouveau pen and ink illustrations. And he was a subject of a big exhibit at London's Victoria and Albert Museum in the summer of 66. So that may have been part of the inspiration for it. Uh, hair obviously loomed large in the Beatles' history, so that became the focal point of the illustration. Klaus asked the band to go through their personal photos to submit stuff for a collage that he assembled, which actually would earn him a Grammy for Best Album Cover. Hilariously, Klaus Vorman was paid £50, or the equivalent of $140, which was the maximum budget for an album cover in those days. Uh, He worked on it in his apartment for three weeks, and when the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein, first saw it, he reportedly wept. 
apparently because he thought it so beautifully captured their new music. You know who actually owns the uh, the original um, artwork for Revolver? George W. Bush. Joe Walsh. Ah! <laughs> Friend of the pod, Joe Walsh. Ringo's brother-in-law. Boy, just you wait till I get to my Joe Walsh segment later on. Oh, I can't. Yeah, don't don't tell me when it's coming. I want to be surprised. <laughs> I don't know what it is or where it's going to come from. I'm excited. <laughs> Much like Joe Walsh himself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So now we are back on to the track list. We're on side two, which opens with your favorite Beatles song, <laughs> "Good Day Sunshine." Perhaps one of the least essential tracks on this album, but I've always loved it. It bears traces of the New York neo-jug band The Lovin' Spoonful, whose recent hit Daydream sparked McCartney's equally languid and luminous song. Uh, I always thought this was funny. I guess Lovin' Spoonful frontman John Sebastian was unaware that he'd inspired this Beatles song for nearly 20 years. And when he found out, he thought it was really funny because he said that Daydream was his attempt at copying the guitar part from baby love by the supremes which i can't really hear i guess do you believe in magic was heat wave that i can kind of hear baby love i can't i was talking to this is i there's no other way to put this i was talking to giles martin about some of the surprising influences on this album and he invoked the famous douglas adams quote from hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy there's an art to flying or rather a knack the knack lies in learning how to throw yourself at the ground and miss (laughs) which is great uh there's similar phenomenon at play when great artists steal outright and therefore create something new inadvertently you know john sebastian thinking about the supremes came up with daydream Daydream inspired Good Day Sunshine, which I guess thematically are related, but doesn't really sound the same to me. So, yeah, it's always interesting when you hear that people were inspired by something that is miles away from where they ended up. I love that. I'm just going to let you punch yourself out of this section. (laughs) I got there. (laughs) I hate this song. I know, I know. Unrelated, but sort of related. Did you know that John Sebastian and his fellow Love and Spoonful bandmate Zal Yanofsky were originally in a band called the Mugwumps with Cass Elliott and Denny Doherty, who would go on to be one half of the Mamas and the Papas? You made all those words up. <laughs> they actually watched the uh, the Beatles make their Ed Sullivan debut at Mama Cass's apartment. Imagine being a fly on the wall there. John <laughs> Sebastian from Love and Spoonful and Mama Cass watching the Beatles on Sullivan for the first time. I just think that's cool. <laughs> That's cute. But Good Day Sunshine is a rare moment of brightness on what's otherwise a very dark album. As uh, Beatley's Books notes, half the songs on the British track listing for Revolver have lyrics that contain the word death or die. But yeah, this was the era of Daydream and Summer in the City, another Love and Spoonful song, and The Kinks, Sunny Afternoon, and Donovan Had Sunshine Superman. So, sunny songs were really in the air in the summer of 66, and Good Day Sunshine is also kind of a throwback to those early kind of music hall soft shoe type numbers, like on the sunny side of the street. It always kind of seemed like the song that Paul would have written for like, you know, something that his dad would have enjoyed. Something like When I'm 64 or uh, he wrote a Sinatra pastiche when he was a teen called Suicide, <laughs> which when he later became famous, Sinatra reached out to Lennon McCartney and said, hey, do you have any songs for me? And Paul got all excited. And he 
dusted off the song that he wrote as a teen and sent it to Sinatra. And Sinatra apparently never even got back to him. I guess Paul was like, yeah, he probably thought I was taking the piss because it was like not a good song. Well, Sinatra famously would uh, introduce yeah. something at concerts as my favorite Lennon McCartney composition. So, do you know that I recently did an interview with Patty Boyd and she told me that she and George were in the studio when Sinatra recorded My Way. One take. Went down in the studio, full orchestra. He went down there, drunk, belted it, kind of <laughs> belted it, came upstairs into the control room after the one take. Can we hear that back? All right, that's good. Let's go get a drink. <laughs> that was it. And then they he called them all Jack. <laughs> and Patty was like, wait a minute. This is when, like, just after the Beatles had done like seven or eight months of doing the White Album. And she yeah. was like, wait a minute. What? One take? That's it? And he was like, listen, sugar, that's not how Frank does it. Ring a ding ding. It's <laughs> not <laughs> Frank doing his third person. <laughs> yeah, well, of course. Yeah. Listen, Jack, he calls, he calls. Patty boy Jack. <laughs> anyway, not mercifully for you, not a lot to say about Good Day Sunshine. The recording was pretty uneventful, although apparently John sat this one out, marking yet another song that he didn't play an instrument on during the Revolver sessions. He didn't play on Eleanor Rigby. He didn't play on Love You Too. Didn't play on Here, There, and Everywhere. Didn't play on For No One. And it's not totally certain if he played rhythm guitar and got to get you into my life. And he only added tambourines and hand claps to I Want to Tell You. So that's half the tracks on this album he might not have really played on. So that's interesting. Hmm. Good for him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's not too much that's interesting about the recording as evidenced by the fact that this is one of one of the first songs on any of these expansive reissue box sets that have no outtake material whatsoever. Paul, I think, originally planned to have a guitar solo in this song, at least outlined in the early lyrics manuscript, but he ultimately asked George Martin to throw in a jazzy piano solo that he recorded at half speed and sped it up to give it that honky-tonk effect, which was similar to what he did for the solo on In My Life, although they'd speed it up to make it sound more like a Baroque harpsichord piece. Uh, adorably, Paul and his band played the song as a wake-up call to the crew of the International Space Station in 2005. And mission specialist Rex Walheim said, people all around Earth love Paul McCartney's music, and boy, you can rest assured that people all above the Earth love this music, too. I, I would flush too. the oxygen out of the space station if they did that to me. <clears throat> but now we are up to your favorite My song. My favorite. And your bird can sing. It's your favorite, but that's funny because, you know... I. <laughs> I'm reminded of that great quote from Robert Christgau about the Eagles. Another thing that interests me about the Eagles is that I hate them. Uh, another thing that interests me about And Your Bird Can Sing is that John hates it. Oh, it's He's, so good. He hates it. He's referred to it as another horror in a 1971 interview with Hit Parader. And his feelings hadn't softened by 1980 when he described it to Playboy as, quote, another of my throwaways. But Paul really likes it. And it's apparently a favorite of Slash's, too. Anybody who loves guitars has to love yeah, this song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's you know without getting into a complete digression on the use of harmony guitars um, or guitar harmony if you will. Or guitar harmony if you will. Yeah, I mean Keith Richards has talked a lot about how the guitar parts to Chuck Berry stuff were supposed to sound like stacked horn voicings. Oh wow. Stacked in fourths. But you get a lot of these thirded guitar harmonies that start popping up around this time 
I mean, Guitar World, no less an authority than Guitar World magazine, IDs this as sort of the wellspring for bands like Almond Brothers, who would in a mm. few years be doing extensive harmonized leads uh, along with Leonard Skinner. I mentioned Joe Wall. I mentioned friend of the pod, Joe Walsh earlier. Uh, Joe Walsh apparently uh, was so obsessed with this song that he became a, a local legend growing up by learning how to play that solo, that harmonized solo by himself, never knowing that it was in fact two of them. I Yeah, I have to say. <laughs> and didn't learn until years later <laughs> that it was harmonies. And he often said, I'm the only person who can do that in the world, including George. Yeah. Reminds me of when John had a particular rhythm pattern they wanted Ringo to play, and he played him a song that kind of demonstrated what he was talking about. And Ringo said, it was like, John, John, there's two drummers on that track. John's like, oh, oh don't, don't, don't worry about that. Did you, uh, did you know about the seven levels thing? Speaking of acid? Oh, it's pot, but yeah. Oh, no, pos- go- pot. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> they were smoking weed with Bob Dylan for the first uh, time. Yeah, as 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 many of as us one did. does. Yeah, <laughs> who among us? And uh, Paul Paul McCartney said that he knew the secret of life, and he told Mal Evans to write it down. <laughs> and then the next day, showed it to him. <laughs> it just contained the the line: "There are seven levels." <laughs> I mean, the best part is, I forget if it was in the anthology or in the Barry Miles book many years from now. Paul, like, doubles down, and he was like, well, you know, it's actually, like, kind of insightful, because there's a lot of, like, Eastern religions that talk about That is absolutely the Paul response to that. (laughs) Here is some stoned bullshit that I will try and justify later. Oh, man. Incredible. Anyway, I think the songs are great. I don't know what, I don't know what, uh, you know. I don't know what he's talking about. They were going for like the kind of the birds thing on this. You know, we uh, we talked a lot about how McGuinn and Crosby were hanging out with them. Um, supposedly turned George onto Ravi Shankar. But that is in itself funny because McGuinn was supposedly turned on to pick up the 12 string after he saw George playing one with Hard Day's Night. Uh, and <laughs> after they became buddies, McGuinn goes over to George's house and holds that guitar posing for a picture with it which it's is like a little polaroid it's really cute and he's like super beaming. adorable and it's like in the late 80s too like he's not like young it's like yeah it's cute uh there's a documentary called mccartney 321 from last year where rick rubin makes the observation that the solo in this song sounds as if it has a bit of a celtic flair to which paul says we're liverpool boys and they say liverpool is the capital of ireland so it's likely the solo is influenced Sure. Uh, He said, uh, we would just make up the solo in this case and then just learn the harmony on the solo and then play the two live. Uh, But that is a pretty simple way of describing a very complicated process. Uh, They spent 12 hours recording a version of this that they ultimately scrapped, which you can hear on the Super Deluxe set where it is labeled first version, take two. Have you heard that? I, I'm really curious to see what you think about it because this is the on this early version, George uses his Rickenbacker 12 string and it really sounds like a bird song. Mm. And it's it's very it sounds a lot more 60s in like a stereotypical way because yeah. he's using that Rickenbacker 12 string. But it, it sounds cool. It's a lot poppier. Mm. No, I guess in the final version they moved to their casinos, which makes it a little less jangly. 
the Guitar World article I saw talk about um, it, this also being the ground zero for power pop as a movement, which again, you can hear. I mean, you, in, and within, God, when did Big Star first come out? 70. 71, 72? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, within 71. Yeah. So yeah, within like four years, people were already doing the high harmonies and jangly guitars. John's an idiot. This song rules i'm sorry that's that's such a great tune anyway uh funny outtake why don't you take that part yeah there's a funny outtake that's included on the anthology and also on the new box set where john and paul get the giggles uh they sound stoned (laughs) out of their minds to be honest uh while sharing a microphone to record the backing tracks and they're just howling with laughter for two straight minutes we talked about it in the first part of this episode it's so funny it's impossible not to smile listening to them it's just i said it in the first part of the episode it's the most pure depiction of their friendship that i've ever heard on record they're just hooting i think rob sheffield had a great line about just like laughing into each other's mouths on (laughs) the mic that they're sharing it's great yeah definitely listen to that Uh, The exact meaning of this song is tricky because John never felt passionate enough about it to really deem it worthy of explaining. The most common explanation circulating among fans was that it was a pointed message to Mick Jagger, whose girlfriend, or in the parlance of swinging London, Bird, Marianne Faithful, had started a singing career. Uh, There's also a really strange theory that the song is a dig at friend of the pod frank sinatra uh (laughs) who was i guess unkind about the beatles in a recent interview that he had given with esquire in which he bragged about being able to afford anything he wants which is you know something that's a a a theme or line in the song and adding to the supposed evidence he repeatedly uses the word bird during this interview uh seemingly in reference to his uh his his genitals (laughs) Uh, I guess like cock, yeah. Oh, hog. Well, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> People hog. called them hogs back then. No, really? <laughs> really? When I was 17, <laughs> I had a very good hog. <laughs> so I did it my <laughs> hog. Oh, that's ludicrous. Uh, mm. So that's all interesting. Uh, The likely explanation is that John is addressing an unknown and possibly non-existent upper-class woman who seems to have everything. And the title phrase is just merely hyperbole. You have all this and more. All this and your bird can sing. Uh, But then comes the repeated line, you don't get me, which was apparently the original title of the song. One of the many instances of John in song talking about feeling misunderstood, like in Strawberry Fields, nobody I think is in my tree. Nobody, you know, it's basically another way of saying nobody gets me, which is a frequent thing that he would talk about in interviews about how when he was a little kid, he just felt like he was different than everybody. Up next is For No One. One of the most devastating songs in the entire Beatles canon in terms of pure musical drama. It's not something like, you know, the song Julia, where you have to know a bit of the backstory or anything like that. It's just purely just the information that's given to you in the song. Undoubtedly inspired by Paul's problems with his girlfriend, Jane Asher, but you don't need to know any of that to be profoundly moved by the song. Uh, the second person perspective is really interesting. And it's used to great effect, uh, although they also did use it on She Loves You. I always saw For No One as the flip side of And I Love Her. 
And you can really draw a line from I love her to the things we said today to I'm looking through you to you won't see me and we can work it out to for no one. Uh, they're really all songs about his disagreements and not seeing eye to eye with Jane Asher, his girlfriend. But and I love her has the line, a love like ours could never die. And the working title of for no one was why did it die? Uh, which I think is just very poignant. He wrote this song on a Swiss vacation with Jane. Uh, after learning to ski a bit during the filming for Help, he wanted to give it another go. And he says that he went off into the bathroom of his little Swiss chalet and wrote this song. So just to recap, he went off on a romantic holiday with his girlfriend and wrote one of the most devastating breakup songs of all time. Um, and hilariously, he has a history of doing this while on vacation with Jane. He wrote the deeply unsettled things we said today while on vacation in the Virgin Islands with Jane and Ringo and his future wife, Maureen. And he also wrote the heartbreaking lyrics to Yesterday during a holiday with Jane in Portugal after rapping filming for Help in May of 1965. But uh, yeah, the fact that he went off to write for no one in the toilet leads me to believe that he was seeking some kind of refuge after an argument and just went into the bathroom and locked the door and just hit out. Who among us? It really gives credence to the the Ruddles bit with Eric Idle writing the writing. And I love you. I love you. While he's on his honeymoon. She's just like boredly staring off into the distance. Uh, is that Bianca Jagger? Yeah. Yeah. It is. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, Paul has a great quote about for no one in the authorized biography. Uh, many years from now, which is written with his friend Barry Miles. It's basically like a like a co-authored autobiography. He said, I suspect for no one was about another argument. I don't have easy relationships with women. I never have. I talk too much truth. <laughs> <laughs> Linda, Lin, Linda was alive at the time. So I, um, he elaborated on this in his new book, Lyrics, that came out in 2021. He said, it's a song about rejection, the breakup or marking the end of a relationship that didn't work. It's always been quite a rich area to explore in a song. Having been through it a few times, as I suppose a lot of people have, it was an emotion I could relate to. And it seemed like a good idea to put into a song because probably a lot of other people could relate to it, too. In the song, I'm talking about two people who've broken up. But obviously, as with any writer, it all comes from your own experience, and inevitably you're talking about yourself. And he goes on to speak directly about his girlfriend, Jane Asher, who he'd been dating since the end of 1963, and he lived in her family house upstairs and befriended her older brother, Peter, who was one half of the pop duo Peter and Gordon, for whom he'd write a bunch of hits, A World Without Love being the most famous. Uh, Jane Asher was this glamorous actress who was in Alfie with Michael Caine and came from this upper class, very respectable academic family. And so Paul and Jane Asher were seen as kind of like the power couple of swinging London, him and uh, Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful are probably vying for the top spot. But Jane and Paul ultimately broke off their engagement in 1968, and he elaborated about this as much as he ever would in the lyrics book. At the time, you think any love affair could or should or would or will last forever, unless it's a quick wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, one night stand. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> uh, but when you're going out with someone, when it's your girlfriend and you've been with her for a reasonable amount of time, it's very different. Jane Asher and I were together for around five years, so at the back of my mind, I expected to marry her. But as the time got closer, I think I realized it wasn't right. 
You can't ever put your finger on it, but when Linda came along shortly after Jane and I broke up, I just thought, oh, I don't know, maybe this feels more right. <laughs> King of the understatement. And then when Linda and I got to know each other, I felt, this is more me. I'm more her. That's a beautiful way to put that. Hmm. And there were little things with Jane that we felt just didn't match up. I love a lot of things about her, and I will always admire a lot of things about her. She's a wonderful woman, but little bits of the jigsaw weren't quite fitting. It's a horrible moment when you've broken up with someone and you look at them, this person you used to be in love with or thought you were in love with, and none of that old feeling is there. It's like it just switched off, too, and it's not great to be on the receiving end of that. Uh, supposedly, the end of him and Jane came when uh, Jane came home early and found him in bed with an American woman named Francie Schwartz. Uh, who was trying to get a script sold to the Beatles' corporate free-for-all Apple. She claims that Paul and Jane were already technically split. Uh, understandably, I've never actually seen Paul talk about his relationship with this fancy woman or really about his breakup with Jane any more than what I just quoted. Uh, but back to the song, I always loved the rhythm of the lyrics, how the first two lines in the verse were these short declarations as if he's just weary and groggy and depressed and trying to find the energy to say more you know she wakes up she makes up and then he finds she takes her time and then it pours out of him but it takes him a minute to to rouse himself and and just the way that the most explosive line in the song her love is dead is just buried in the middle of a verse because the man in the song doesn't believe her, doesn't want to believe it. He's in denial. He's deluding himself. He thinks she needs him. Then the day breaks at the end of the song and all the things that she said will fill your head and it starts to dawn on him. It's over and you let her go, but you won't forget her. It, it's so good. I mean, something about the way this is written makes it almost seem like it's a Harold Pinter play or something. And Paul said that his 1971 solo song, Another Day, his debut solo single, was sort of a sequel to For No One, the song about a woman getting ready and going about her boring day on her own. And yeah, I just, I love Paul's little playlists. And I know that some of Paul's detractors suggest that it makes him seem you know, a bit phony because it's, it's not real, man, you know, but I've always admired his eye, like a novelist on stuff like Another Day and Lovely Rita and Eleanor Rigby, and especially for no one. And John loved it too. He called it one of his favorite tracks of Paul's, a nice piece of work. He said, and McCartney loved the Belgian surrealist René Magritte. And uh, not long after sessions for Eleanor Rigby in April of 1966, Paul went to Paris to purchase two of Magritte's oil paintings. And uh, I, I think he actually ended up buying Magritte's old easel that he paints on now. He's a hmm. huge Magritte fan. And there's a quote from Magritte that really, to me, seemed to perfectly sum up Paul's M.O. when it comes to some of the stuff he writes. Magritte said, I want to show reality in such a way that it evokes mystery. I look for poetry in the world of familiar objects. The past and present are united in the imagination. But who can explain such a poetic moment? I just feel like that's that's very Paul to me. I mean, even the line in Eleanor Rigby, uh, wearing a face that she keeps in the jar by the door. Uh, that just, to me, that, that sounds like a Marguerite painting. It sounds like the picture of the man on the bowler hat with the apple in front of his face or mm -hmm. something like that. It just, it, it's something, all these very ordinary things given a, a, a little surreal twist. Like Penny Lane's another great example too. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I just love that. It's Paul, this decent, straight seeming man who had the power to shock people with his sideways visions. I just, I was always into that.
<laughs> and after you waxing deeply sincere on Paul's humanistic embrace of uh, finely sketched portrait of humanity, let's talk about the time he nearly got into a little pissy match with one of <laughs> London's top session musicians. Um, yeah, Ringo and Paul are the only Beatles who play on this song. Um, Paul plays a piano and also an instrument belonging to George Martin called a clavichord, which is similar to the better-known harpsichord. A harpsichord plucks the strings, while a clavichord has metal tips at the end of its hammers. Um, they hired a session player named Alan Civil to play this French horn part. And while he was writing this solo, George Martin was telling Paul about the range of the instrument so that he could know what kind of notes to work with. I mean, every... You know, if you're playing piano or guitar, those are concert key instruments, and then every wind instrument has a a range on it that is dictated by the very nature of the horn. And it can be difficult for people who write on concert pitch instruments to understand that. So Paul includes a note in this solo that is technically out of the range of the French horn. You know, it would be a reach for a player, but Alan Civil made it. He literally played a note that the the high note of that solo that should be out of reach for a, a French horn player. Paul was not impressed. <laughs> uh, in the Beatle in the Beatles anthology, George Martin said, Paul didn't realize how brilliantly Alan Civil was doing. We got the definitive performance and Paul said, well, okay, I think you can do it better. Can't you, Alan? And Alan nearly exploded. Of course, he didn't do it better than that, and the way we'd already heard it was the way you hear it now. <laughs> uh, and he is credited on the album sleeve, which was a rarity in that time for people doing session work. Um, but he dangled Paul off the stairs of Studio <laughs> Two by his ankles. I love the idea. It's this French horn player for like the London <laughs> Philharmonic, but he's this like East End tough who talks like <laughs> like the Cray Brothers. Yeah, he like pulls out brass knuckles from his <laughs> from his horn case and like pounds up the control. It's Ray Winston. <laughs> All right, Paul, I've had it up to here with your excuses. Uh, <laughs> there, were, there were no hard feelings, yes. though, because Alan Civil worked with the Beatles again in 1967 as one of the orchestra <laughs> musicians on a day in the life. I told you I'd be back, Paul. <laughs> I'm going to get my pound of flesh from you. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Jordan, tell us about Dr. Robert. Yeah, not one of my favorite tracks on Revolver. In fact, I think it's probably my least favorite. Partially because I grew up with the American vinyl release version and Dr. Robert wasn't on there. The American albums always shaved off. I think if the British albums usually had 14 tracks, the American ones had 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. And then the American record label would collect the ones that they shaved off the original British albums and release American-only albums to try to squeeze a little more money out of their acts. So, uh, yeah, I, I didn't really grow up hearing this song very much. And um, I don't know, to me, it, it seems like one of the songs, probably the only song on Revolver that could have been on an earlier Beatles album. Even Why Giles said the same thing. It just has like a touch of the Mersey beat to it. There's nothing really like, you know, it's a guitar, bass, and drum song. Yeah, I don't know. There's nothing very complicated about it. Mm. I don't think it has a very good melody. It's it's a jokey song. I mean, the song is yeah. written about this drug-pushing doctor. And Paul even said, I think even at the time in the uh, 
in the um the Beatles the authorized biography book by Hunter Davis I think he said you know Dr. Robert's kind of like a joke um so yeah I don't know it's just not one of my favorite songs well it's noteworthy because it's one of the earliest overtly druggy songs from the band you know they have the line turn me on that pops up in the uh, b-side to the I feel fine single she's a woman that's the end of 64 and then of course day tripper in December of 65 is really pretty on the nose but you know why uh Bob Dylan when he first went to go meet him in August of 64 and he the famous trip when he turned him on the marijuana he thought they already smoked pot and they were like no and he said well, what do you mean what about that line and I want to hold your hand uh it's such a feeling that my love I get high and they're like no no that was I was it's such a feeling that my love I can't hide <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, given that it's clearly about a man with a, a liberal prescription guide, <laughs> uh, it earns the distinction of being one of the first undisguised songs about drug use in the Beatles canon. Uh, John uh, took to claiming that this song was actually about himself uh, towards the end of his life. Uh, he said, I was the one that carried all the pills on tour and always have done. Well, in the early days. Later on, the roadies did it. We just kept them in our pockets loose in case of trouble. Uh, Paul, on the other hand, frequently said that it was about a doctor who just kept New York high uh, by dealing with, or two, high society Manhattanites. After years of speculation that the real-life Dr. Robert was ID'd in the authorized Paul McCartney biography many years from now. And his name is Robert. Author Barry Miles says he was one Dr. Robert Freeman, whose discreet East 78th Street clinic was conveniently located for Jackie Kennedy and other wealthy Upper East Siders from Fifth Avenue and Park to stroll over for their vitamin B12 shots, which also happened to contain a massive dose of amphetamine. Dr. Robert's reputation spread, and it was not long before visiting Americans told John and Paul about him. From uh, Miles' description, this guy seems like quite the uh, quite the proverbial character. Yeah, he was born in Germany, and he was known as the Great White Father because of his hair. At least I hope that's why. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he bragged about having, quote, probably 100 famous names who come here, but was ultimately kicked out of the New York State Medical Society for, what else, malpractice. Uh, still, we didn't let that keep him down. He published a book called What's So Bad About Feeling Good Before He Died in 1987. That's a great title for a book by Dr. Feelgood. Uh, Paul denied that any of the Beatles ever visited Dr. Robert in real life which you know and they were usually pretty open about their uh, experimentation so I'm inclined to believe him he said as far as I know neither John nor I ever went to the doctor for those kinds of things but there was a fashion for it and there still is change your blood and have a vitamin shot and you'll feel better that means I mean they their dentists turn them on to uh, acid so I guess they had a different doctor for that they used to, I, I don't know if it was the Beatles, I know their manager, Brian Epstein, had a special discreet pill pocket tailored into mm -hmm. all of his suits that he had made that he could just like discreetly reach into and... I mean, pocket, I, there's a photo in this Charles Mingus book of just him with a briefcase full of them with like Mingus? little straps. Uh, yeah, Mingus and Brian Epstein backstage holding this little briefcase that's just like folds open and has like all these pill bottles. Um, this brings us to I Want to Tell You, the third track by George on this record. This really blows my mind because apparently he submitted a fourth 
Preeminent Beatles historian Mark Lewison has claimed that the song Isn't It a Pity, which would later resurface on George's All Things Must Pass album, one of my favorite records, uh, that dates back to this period in 66 and was initially offered up for consideration on Revolver, but ultimately turned back down. He tried to revisit it during the White Album era, put it forward again during the Get Back sessions, and said he considered offering it to Frank Sinatra. Uh, can't see that working out. No, no. I can't believe that Isn't It a Pity was rejected three times, man. That sucks. I know. All Things Must Pass slaps. We should do one on that, oh, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to read the Ladies Tramp thing? Oh, yeah. I mean, we get all the Sinatra anecdotes we've had in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ringo, for his wife Maureen's birthday, got Sinatra, I guess she was a big Sinatra fan, got Sinatra to record a new version of The Lady is a Tramp with new lyrics written by his longtime lyricist Sammy Kahn. Uh, Maureen's a champ. And he recorded this beautiful, hilarious song with lines like, She married Ringo and she could have had Paul. That's why the lady's a champ. And they had it pressed for her on a record for Maureen's birthday. And it was right when Apple Records was launching. And it was the first record ever pressed for Apple. They gave it the catalog number Apple One, which between the fact that there's only one of them, it's the first record ever made for Apple Records done by Sinatra, specifically for Ringo. It's one of the rarest records on the planet. I just think that's so cute. Medium funny. <laughs> you can, it's on YouTube, actually. Anyway, we said this earlier when talking about Love You Too. George never had any titles for his songs in this era. Love You Too was initially Granny Smith, named for engineer Jeff Emmerich's favorite Apple. And when it came time to recording, I want to tell you, George was asked on the talk back by, I think, George Martin. So what are you going to call this? And John just laughs in the background. Granny Smith, part friggin' two. You never have any titles for your songs. So Jeff Emmerich was called upon to come up with another kind of apple, and this time it was Laxton's Superb, which, to be fair, is kind of a killer name. Uh, what is a Laxton? What's the taste profile of a Laxton Superb? You know, Superb? I don't know. I think it's another <laughs> green kind of tart one, I think. Uh, this title was later changed to I Don't Know on the tape box before they landed on the ultimate title, I Want to Tell You, which is kind of a gimme because that's the most repeated phrase in the song uh this is serious beetle nerdery here we've talked about the ruddles the monty python adjacent project that makes fun of the beatles on the tv special they are masterminded by not only eric idle of monty python but also the singer songwriter comedian neil innes he happened to be at Abbey Road the day that the Beatles were recording I Want to Tell You. He was there with his multimedia comedy pop group, the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, who would later appear in the Magical Mystery Tour movie. They're the band at the end of the movie in the strip club segment. Uh, and they would also have a single produced by Paul McCartney, I'm the Urban Spaceman, in 1968. But, uh, yeah, I want to tell you, not too much to share about this track. Um... Speaking of strange names attached to this song, did you know that Ted Nugent did a cover of it in 1979? Ugh. Yeah, it's not very good. Quick reminder to anyone who didn't know about it, Ted Nugent his pants to get out of going to Vietnam. <laughs> I actually didn't know this. Oh, yeah, when he was showing up to the draft board, he was like, he like didn't shower for like a week and just wore the same clothes for like a month and like pooped and peed in his pants and... 
I mean, to make himself look crazy. That's so well, that's standard issue, except for the the actual the pants pooping. Yeah, yeah, yeah he super pooped his pants. <laughs> Probably liked it too. <laughs> well, from that to uh, <laughs> my, I, I think if you really force me to choose, if you really, really force me to choose. My favorite song of all time. Got to get you into my life. I think. Really? It's, yeah, I know. I okay. know. Okay. Yeah. It's funny how uh, the most drug-oriented song that Paul McCartney contributed to Revolver is actually one of the most straight-sounding songs on the record. From its triumphant opening brass fanfare, courtesy of Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames, one of my favorite groups, uh, Got to Get Into My Life. An exuberant, soulful blast of optimism that perfectly encapsulates that first thrilling encounter with a potential new romance. But did you know, you probably did if you've listened this far, that the you McCartney references in the title is not a real human being, but a psychotropic substance. Paul later said, Gotta Get You Into My Life was one that I wrote after I'd been first introduced to pot. It's actually an ode to pot, like someone might write an ode to chocolate or a good claret. What was it? Shelley? Didn't Shelley write a poem to, uh, to a, a good wand? claret? Good wand? I think so. Well, George writes uh, Savoy Truffle about chocolate. Well, that's about Eric Clapton loving chocolate. Yes. Uh, this is where I start poking my nose where it doesn't belong. Um, it's perhaps worth noting that Paul McCartney's first serious exposure to marijuana, as we mentioned, came through Bob Dylan in August 1964, some 18 months and three albums before Revolver, which kind of makes it seem like if you had that song laying around you had three albums to release it what took you so long <laughs> also the title gotta get you into my life seems like kind of a reference to the solomon burke song gotta get you off of my mind which is a hit in mid 65 which again was like nine months after paul was introduced to marijuana given this timeline there are many including John Lennon, who have theorized that Gotta Get You Into My Life is actually about McCartney's first experience with LSD. He was the last Beatle to try it, doing so in December of 1965, with the Guinness Brewery heir Tara Brown, who was later immortalized as the man who blew his mind out in a car on the Sgt. Pepper closer, A Day in a Life, and also the band The Pretty Things drummer, Viv Prince. I guess he was there, too. Uh, from a lyrical perspective, the lines about taking a ride to see another kind of mind seem more illustrative of a psychedelic trip than getting stones. But I don't know. It's silly to quibble about poetic license. To me, the real tell about the song is its place in the Revolver track list alongside Lennon's overt ode to the psychedelic experience. Tomorrow never knows. Heard back to back, the two tracks are similar, to me at least, to the 1967 double A side, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane, in which the two men revisit nostalgic childhood haunts in their own very unique ways. Lennon through the audio impressionism of Strawberry Fields, and McCartney with the hyper-realism of Penny Lane. And much in the same way that Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane were the first two tracks recorded for the sessions that yielded Sgt. Pepper, although they didn't actually make it on that album. They were released as singles beforehand. Tomorrow Never Knows and Gotta Get You Into My Life were the first two tracks recorded for Revolver. And to me, it just seems like they're in conversation with one another. Regardless of the specific type of drug, they're obviously covering the same type of emotional terrain. I always think of it as like two painters in their own style sketching the same still life from alternate sides of the room. McCartney sings of how the experience changed him, 
Whereas Lennon sought to convey the experience itself on Tomorrow Never Knows with all the crazy effects. Also, it's worth interesting that both songs are compositionally similar because they both have a single drone note as the backdrop. Gotta Get Into My Life keeps a G in the bass while a chord moves above it. And uh, Tomorrow Never Knows famously is, like, you know, in, in an Indian modality, only uses one chord. Um, but yeah, anyway, enough of all that nerdery. I just have always loved Paul singing on that song. And Jeff Emmerich recalled in his book Here, There, and Everywhere, at one point, while Paul was recording the lead vocal, John actually burst out of the control room to shout his encouragement, evidence of the camaraderie and teamwork that was so pervasive during the Revolver sessions. I love that. Oh, that's super me, cute. It's like the end of uh, of um, Twist and Shout, at the very end on the fade out. You can hear Paul go, yeah. Oh, adorable. Yeah. Um, McCartney had talked about how he was into very clean, quote, clean recordings around this time. Thanks to the influence. Very clean old man. Uh, Thanks to the influence of Brian Wilson, Pet Sounds. The horns on Got to Get You Into My Life are courtesy of Georgie Fame's backing group, the Blue Flames, who were the band playing at the Bag O' Nails Club in 1967 on the night that Paul McCartney met his future wife, Linda. They were playing the Billy Stewart song, Sitting in the Park, Waiting for You. If you are interested in uh, recreating the <laughs> soundtrack of Paul Linda's first meeting a few days before the famous Sgt. Pepper launch party that she attended as a photographer. Oh, yeah, my favorite part of the new box set is they do a full band performance of Gotta Get Into My Life without the horn, just done almost like a garage band track. And Paul's vocals are much more raw and that little guitar figure that George does at the end of the song. Uh, on the released version, repeats all the way through where the horns would be. Sounds an awful lot like the lead guitar and paperback writer, actually. Um, but yeah, that rules. It's so good. Um, but so do the horns. I love both versions of it. Yeah, and uh, you know, in keeping with his habit of getting microphones uncomfortably close to studio musicians, Jeff Emmerich <laughs> <laughs> jammed the mics right down the bells of the instruments in the horn section for extra intensity. Uh, in his lyrics book, Paul explains, I'd been listening to a lot of American R&B and soul, and there were horn sections on those records. Joe Tex, Wilson Pickett, Sam and Dave, people like that. That was enough impetus for me to think, I'll have a go at that. That's often how things happen with me. I'll hear something on the radio and think, oh, wow, I'm going to do my version of that. So we got some horn players, trumpets and saxophones, I think, into Abbey Road Studio 2, and I explained to them how I wanted it, and they got it immediately. As you alluded to, at the top of the first part of this, I've already lost track. Oh, it was for Tax Man, yeah. As it was alluded to earlier at some point, uh, <laughs> the Beatles were big fans of the sound of these American records. Stax is mentioned. Uh, Motown was marketed as Tamla over in, uh, in the UK, and um, Paul has spoken about his admiration for, we mentioned earlier, for James Jamerson's bass playing on those records in particular. Um, but the sort of grittier, earthier compatriot to that was, of course, Stax Records in Memphis, home of Booker T and the MGs, Otis Redding, Rufa and Carla Thomas, so many more. And there actually had been tentative plans to get the Beatles to record Revolver at Stax in Memphis. And though the equipment in the British studios at the time was far superior because Abbey Road had been doing all these orchestral recordings and everything and... I think at the time, wasn't Stax a former movie theater? Yeah, yeah. They even they still had the sloped floor where the seats used to be. Yeah. But, you know, there was a certain, what the French call a certain I don't know what. 
to the uh, the facilities at Stax. The Stones had recorded at Chess Records in Chicago and did their album Aftermath at RCA in Hollywood, and they encouraged the Beatles to check out studios in America. Stax was the most obvious choice. You know, Paul earlier had mentioned uh, liking Sam and Dave, Joe Tex, Wilson Pickett. John specifically liked Steve Cropper and Duck Dunn. He name-dropped them in an interview with Newsweek in 1966. And you can hear the influence of that kind of music and stuff like The Word and Drive My Car and Rubber Soul. And Brian Epstein apparently flew to Stax in late March to suss out the possibility of the Beatles recording there. And there was talk of Steve Cropper, who was at this point the producer and de facto you know, musical director of Stax, uh, who you know did Knock on Wood and The Midnight Hour, Green Onions. I think that's him playing on Soul Man, too. Yeah, yeah. Producing the sessions with Tom Dowd Engineering. There was even a start date put in the studio diary, April 9th. And rumors that even Elvis had offered to host the Beatles at Graceland, which, again, oh, to be a fly on that wall. <laughs> Uh, there was talk also with them about recording at Atlantic Studios in New York, but that also sort of fell apart. Would that have been, would that have been at the point when Wexler would have stolen the Muscle Shoal guys? What's the timeline there? Right around, yeah, I mean, this if this was April 66, I think right around, yeah. Man, that would have been wild. Oh, man. Uh, the official reason was that they mentioned in the press frequently is that Stax wanted too much money or that the American Musicians Federation, the Musicians Union, would have taken too big of a cut. George Harrison wrote a letter to an Atlanta DJ saying, did you hear we nearly recorded in Memphis? We would all like it a lot, but too many people get insane with money ideas at the mention of the word Beatles, and it fell through. But it's never really been explained fully. Um, the only tracks on Revolver to your mind that would have been served would have been Taxman and Got to Get You Under My Life, uh, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned you think Abbey Road is a good environment for them precisely because it was so straight-laced. If they had been recording somewhere that maybe would have been a little funkier and a little more permissive, they wouldn't have had such an obvious uh, nemesis or at least foil to to buck up against. Yeah, I mean, also, you mentioned that Abbey Road was technically superior. Yeah, they had some of the greatest minds in recording that they could just enlist as co-conspirators. I feel like at, at Stax, they would have just been clients. But I feel like at Abbey Road, they had all these young, uh, I'm sorry, like like the 60s equivalent of like computer geeks that were incredibly technologically plugged in who probably wanted an excuse to like try something new and weird and out of the box and the Beatles gave them uh, what they should have done was track it stacks with Booker T and the MG can you imagine how sick the rhythm tracks would have been had they oh, let like man. gotten Paul off the base Oh, well, Duck Paul, done. I would have I would have kept Paul on the bass. No. What? Duck done. Ringo, Ringo on drums, Duck done. Steve Cropper, Lennon can play, I guess on this album Lennon didn't want to play any rhythm, so let George take it. That's a hell that's a and then you take it you take it. Oh man, you tell me you, you Booker T on keys. You would really Considering take where Paul they went off bass. Absolutely, 100%. He was trying to do Duck Dunn on this for grab. We gotta give him something. Uh, yeah, give him lead guitar. He oh, could he have got sang. Cropper, I guess he would have said. Yeah, he would have okay. All right, fine. He can no, do but the Mick my, no, my my fantasy casting of this is that they just track the basics at Stacks, and then they like the Stones did it, Muscle Shoals, and then they bring it somewhere else to mix. I mean, the other thing that I 
shudder to think about is what the stacks guys would have done with something like tomorrow never knows i mean you know you oh need, yeah you need no, george I mean, martin for that they yeah i mean dude it's the f-ing beatles they could have just like cut two songs there and, and left you know that's i i don't know if that was like how they did it back then no i, I know like, that's that's much more of a stones thing is to just kind of know. fly through and visit different studios for the sounds and then leave yeah as Paul himself said in 1966, when we finished Revolver, we realized that we had found a new British sound almost by accident. So, you know, I think something, so that came out of the Revolver sessions. But yeah, the whole team at Abbey Road were really just all MVPs. Case in point, after the five horn players recorded their part for Gotta Get Into My Life, Paul felt like he wanted the brass to sound bigger. And rather than call everyone back to redo it, Jeff Emmerich, the engineer, had the idea of doubling the part onto a second piece of tape, which he then played back alongside it on the multi-track, but just slightly out of sync, which had the effect of doubling the horn sound, so it sounded thicker. And it's worth noting that the practice of artificial double tracking, which is known as ADT and now standard at studios all over the world, was developed during sessions for Revolver by the engineer Ken Townsend. I think it was for the song Dr. Robert. And it came about because Lennon was just moaning about all the time that they had to spend double tracking vocals. And Lennon himself hated the sound of his own voice. That's why on so many of his solo songs, he's got a lot of slapback Elvis echo on it because he just wanted something to disguise the sound of his own voice because he hated hearing it. So whenever he had to double track his own vocals and hear him singing to himself in his earphones right into his ear, it was just super painful for him. So he was moaning about it. And this guy, Ken Townsend, developed this artificial double tracking technique to eliminate this painful chore and hilariously this gives you an idea of what abbey road was like at this time ken townsend was technically forbidden from employing his own invention until it had been cleared by the proper channels for approval but i guess townsend ignored him anyway because they were the beatles and they could get away with whatever they wanted and jeff emmerich had to get special permission to put a delicate and very expensive ribbon microphone really mm-hmm. close to Ringo's bass drum to get that huge drum whack heard on stuff like Tomorrow Never Knows and She Said, She Said. Uh, Townsend and Emmerich often risk getting their wrists slapped for unauthorized use of equipment in an effort to make the Beatles' whims a reality, but they're all champions. They all invented these sounds that people are trying to get to this day. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. And this brings us to the closer. Tomorrow Never Knows. A revolver could only ever close with Tomorrow Never Knows. What else could possibly follow it? It's the first song in the Beatles' repertoire and possibly the first song in the pop rock realm that made no attempt at commercial accessibility whatsoever. And it also made no attempt to be replicated in front of a paying audience. It was purely a studio enterprise, which paved the way for the rest of their career. As we said, this was the last album that was released while the band were still a touring entity. Uh, Although none of these songs were ever performed. I think it was released three weeks. Yeah. A little over three weeks before their very last concert. It's amazing to me that Tomorrow Never Knows was done on the first day of sessions for Revolver in April of 1966. And, you know, over the last half century, A Day in the Life, 
off of Sgt. Pepper's Earn the Reputation is the song that really crystallizes the Lennon-McCartney partnership. And it's kind of an obvious choice because the division of labor is clear on that song because of the shared vocal duties. Paul has his bit in the middle that he sings. John has the verses. I think Tomorrow Never Knows goes one better. It utilizes the unique gifts not just of John and Paul, but of pretty much all four Beatles in equal measure. It's just amalgamating their interests with truly invaluable help from George Martin and the production staff. Tomorrow Never Knows began with John Lennon and his tireless exploration of his own psyche in dogged pursuit of inner peace. Having embraced the fashionable yet dubious promise of LSD as enlightenment in chemical form, Lennon visited Indica, the bookshop run by friends of McCartney's, uh, who no doubt introduced him to the spot. And among the proto-New Age titles on offer, he picked up The Psychedelic Experience, a book by former Harvard professor-turned-self-proclaimed acid guru Timothy Leary, along with fellow academic psychologist Richard Alpert, later known as Ram Das, and Ralph Metzner. This was based on a 1927 translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and it functioned as a kind of LSD for dummies guide. Uh, Lennon would himself sarcastically refer to it in later years as Leary's How to Take a Trip book. <laughs> Whenever you're in doubt, turn off your mind, relax, float downstream, it advised. Beyond the restless flowing electricity of life is the ultimate reality, the void. Since Leary himself had nabbed the words from an ancient text, Lennon felt free to borrow them liberally. So with the lyrics mostly in place, the music came largely from Harrison's fascination with Indian music, which made use of long tenpura drones. Indian music was like all just on one chord, Harrison explained. It didn't modulate. John wanted to try a tune like that. At first, the band worried about bringing the idea to George Martin, then still seen as the responsible, respectable adult in the room. He had shepherded them through simple rock and roll progressions, but this was, as Paul McCartney would later reflect, a radical departure. We'd always had at least three chords, and maybe a change for the middle eight. Suddenly, this was John just strumming on C rather earnestly, and the words were all very deep and meaningful. Certainly not, thank you girl, a bit of a change <laughs> from all that. It was a song about transcendence. There were no verse, chorus, structure, or end line rhyme scheme, but George Martin was unfazed. In fact, he was intrigued as he listened to his young charges. Rather interesting, John. Jolly interesting. <laughs> uh, when he had signed them four years earlier, George Martin wasn't totally convinced they had what it took to write a proper song, and now they were the ones challenging his very understanding of what a song could even be. George never freaked out when we brought him even the most crazy ideas, McCartney says in the deluxe edition liner notes to Revolver. He was very supportive that way. Now, John had a habit of speaking in pictorial terms to evoke the sounds that he wanted to hear. And as George Martin would later say, he'd make whooshing sounds and try to describe what only he could hear in his head, saying he wanted a song to, quote, sound orange. And for this song, which was at this point tentatively titled Mark One, Lennon announced that he wanted his voice to sound like the Dalai Lama chanting from a mountaintop. And to accomplish this wobbly effect, Lennon helpfully suggested that they suspend him from a rope attached to the studio <laughs> ceiling and fling him around the microphone like a human tetherball as he sang. <laughs> By all accounts, he wasn't joking, and he was never the most technical of the group, and the other Beatles used to joke that he couldn't even change a light bulb. 
Engineer Jeff Emmerich had the slightly less dangerous idea of putting his voice through a rotating Leslie speaker cabinet, which is usually used for Hammond organs. And that's the thing that, that spins rather than actually spinning John himself. But the principles are actually kind of similar. So as they're working on this track, it was decided that a typical guitar break just wasn't appropriate for, you know, what was shaping up to be the most unusual song the Beatles had ever done at this point. For a different kind of solo, they considered Paul's home experiments with tape loops. And McCartney's influences at this point were becoming extremely vast, especially in the Beatles' downtime in early 1966, when he was soaking up anything and everything that fell outside the traditional pop purview. He was the only Beatle who lived in London at this time, so he took full advantage of his residence in what Time magazine had recently dubbed the Swinging City. And he embarked on a rigorous program of self-education, attending galleries, seminars, and underground happenings nearly nightly. He told journalist Maureen Cleave of the Evening Standard in this period, I vaguely mind people knowing anything I don't know. I'm trying to cram everything in, all the things I've missed. People are saying things and painting things and writing things, composing things that are great. And I must know what people are doing. I love that sentiment. <laughs> His girlfriend, the actress Jane Asher, provided access for the upwardly mobile Paul into the world of upper class dinner parties and theatrical openings, while her older brother Peter Asher welcomed him into London's hipster elite. And before long, Paul's rubbing shoulders with beat poet heroes like Allen Ginsberg and William S. Burroughs. And some of this was for self-education, but he hoped some of it would come through in his work with the Beatles. In February of 1966, Paul attended a lecture by the Italian avant-garde composer Luciano Berrio, and he frequently dropped in on free-form music concrete performances by disciples of John Cage, Edgar Varese, and Karlheinz Stockhausen, very famous avant-garde performers. And he later said during the Beatles anthology, people were starting to lose their pure pop mentality and mingle with artists. A kind of cross-fertilization was starting to happen. And major result of this was Tomorrow Never Knows. And Paul used to, I love this, he used to make these little home movies and he would take songs by free jazz artists like Ornette Coleman or Albert Ayler to use as the soundtrack. And George Martin used to hate Albert Ayler. And uh, I guess whenever he'd come over to McCartney's house for dinner, Paul used to put on Ayler's Spiritual Unity album. To <laughs> it's a tough him. record. Yeah, it's yeah, a it tough is. record to get into. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but even though he might not have liked the sounds themselves, George Martin really appreciated this open-mindedness. Uh, and he later said, you know, we usually think of John as being the avant-garde one with Yoko and so on. But at the time, Paul was heavily in the Stockhausen and John Cage and all the avant-garde artists while John was living a comfortable suburban life. Yeah, it was John Lennon who was later credited for uh, declaring avant-garde the French word for bullshit. Um, <laughs> Paul McCartney, thanks largely to Stockhausen, develops this interest in tape loops. Um, this is, of course, when tape was literally the fragment of what you would record music onto. And with certain players, you could jury rig them so that they would loop endlessly back on themselves. Um, and there are a couple different people who are really, again, I, I, I just want to point out that I want to point out that American people had been doing this very early on. Steve Reich and all that. Steve Reich. Uh, Steve Reich's uh, violin phase is 65, 67, but It's Gonna Rain is it's actually rain, 65. Yeah. Terry Riley had been using this as early as the um, as the late 
50s. Using the Wollensack tape recorder, friend of the pod, the Wollensack <laughs> tape recorder, famous from the demo of Monster Mash and Brian Wilson's uh, Beach Boys demos. <laughs> anyway, I used to have a couple of Brennell tape recorders, Paul McCartney told Barry Miles. I used to experiment with them when I had an afternoon off, which was quite often. It was a very free, formless time for me. Formative, yet formless. I didn't have to be up for the baby. At that time, there was none of that. So I would sit around all day creating little tapes. McCartney would dub these sound collages onto Philips cassettes, which were at that point a new invention, and play them at particularly hip parties. It was really kind of a stoned thing, he admitted. And for Tomorrow Never Knows, he brought in a few dozen of these tape loops in a plastic bag from which five were selected to form the surreal sound bed for the track. For years, it was a mystery as to what these actually were until digital technology allowed us to undo that tape manipulation and reveal that the loops in question are a B-flat major chord dubbed from an orchestral record. A scalar phrase played on a sitar. Flute and string notes recorded on the early sample-based synthesizer, the Mellotron. This next sound, I believe, is also from a Mellotron, but I've heard it called a couple different things. Uh, I'm just going to use my ears and say that I think it's a trumpet. And McCartney himself laughing, which is uh, sped up and manipulated to the point where it sounds like a seagull. What a time to be alive. <laughs> um, but capturing this uh, somewhat cacophonous symphony of manipulated sounds was uh, a tall task. Thankfully, Jeff Emmerich was up for it. He wrote in his memoir, Every tape machine in the studio was commandeered and every available EMI employee was given the task of holding a pencil or drinking glass to give the loops the proper tensioning. In many instances, this meant they had to be standing out in the hallway looking quite sheepish. Most of these people didn't have a clue what we were doing. They probably thought we were daft. Add in the fact that all the technical staff were required to wear white lab coats, and the whole thing became totally surreal. <laughs> Choreographing the operation in any kind of meaningful way was out of the question. On the first attempt, heard on the box set, George Martin can be heard announcing, Here it comes! Stand by! <laughs> as the enlisted staffers hit play on their respective tape machines. So just to point out to anyone, he probably, these are this is what, quarter-inch tape, we think, that he did on a reel-to-reel? Quarter-inch or one-inch tape. So he brought in reels, not the actual cassettes, right? He yeah. was bringing the actual source. So you have to stretch those out to the proper length, find where they were going to be tense enough to loop, and then anchor them the pivot points of these around which they would loop with a drinking glass with pencils and yeah. or a pencil. So you have someone holding all of these individual loops taut. 
taut at their individual points spatially spread out across Abbey Road. And then they have to hit play on all of them at once. (laughs) George Martin explained in the Beatles anthology, these machines were going all the time. The loops being fed to different faders on our control panel on which we could bring up the sound on any time as an organ. This haphazard activation of these sequences ensured that it could never be reproduced exactly the same again, making each time they hit play a specific phenomenon never to be repeated. The randomness of it all appealed to the Beatles. It followed in the spirit of William S. Burroughs's cut-up poetry technique, wherein text would be snipped out of newspapers or magazines and rearranged to read something new. When you cut into the present, Burroughs once explained, the future leaks out. Ooh. Was that a big Dylan thing, too? He wrote stuff like that? Uh, Bowie. Bowie. Bowie was a big yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Well, the future leaks out, and Tomorrow Never Knows was definitely the sound of the future, but Lennon found himself stuck for a name. The working title Mark One had been discarded in favor of The Void, which is a cool track name, especially for 1966, but that struck him as a little bit ominous. So then his thoughts turned, as they often do, to Ringo. <laughs> whose sage words of humor and humility grounded the band in much the same way that his stick work anchored the track. John later said, I felt a bit self-conscious about the lyrics. He's talking in 1980, right before his death. So I took one of Ringo's malapropisms to take the edge off the heavy philosophical lyrics. Now, Ringo was notorious for uttering phrases that were memorable, if not completely sensical. A Hard Day's Night was another one. Uh, Tomorrow Never Knows fell out of his mouth during a press conference on February 22nd, 1964, the day the Beatles returned home from their first trip to the United States, which was, you know, the trek that made Beatlemania truly a global phenomenon. And the phrase came as a response to a reporter's question about an unfortunate incident that occurred at a gala event in Washington, D.C., when a stranger snuck up behind Ringo and snipped off a lock of his hair. (laughs) <laughs> and Ringo, you know, talking about it to this reporter, took a very, you know, zen approach to it. So, uh, what can you say? You know, what can you say? What can you say? Oh, yeah, tomorrow never knows. This is just uh, his way of trying to shrug it all off. And you can see <laughs> there's a news real footage of this conversation taking place, and you can just see John behind him just doubling over with laughter when he hears him say that. So clearly this phrase stuck with John because two years later, two plus years later, he used it as the song title. And, you know, it's fitting. This this hair snipping incident, it's an early taste of the type of inhumane treatment that the Beatles would be forced to endure over the next few years, especially while on the road. And uh, eventually, by the time they were recording Revolver, they were prisoners of the presidential suite they were you know just locked in their rooms basically until showtime and then by their last tour they were being transported onto the field of baseball stadiums in armored trucks without even any seats like it'd be like wells fargo vans used to transport money into banks and they would just be sliding around this like metal inside of a truck i mean it was just really dehumanizing um and just mere weeks after tomorrow never knows was released they gave up touring altogether. so given the origin of the phrase tomorrow never knows with this really kind of unfortunate incident where the beatles were treated really like animals i think it's the perfect title for a song that basically waved goodbye to beatlemania but i have always loved this song because 
I would argue that it's each Beatle at their best. You have Lennon's fearless internal probing. You have McCartney's boundless search for the latest cutting edge ideas and Harrison's passion for India and his spiritual connection to its music and Ringo's rock solid rhythm and homespun homilies that added a human element that anchored some of these way out concepts. And that to me is the blend. That's the bond. That's what makes the Beatles the Beatles. But unfortunately, as we all know, it couldn't last. We all know how the story ends. The year after Revolver was released during sessions for Sgt. Pepper in 1967, the band were visited in the studio by Klaus Foreman, the artist responsible for the Revolver sleeve, as we mentioned. And he'd been a friend of theirs since their pre-fame days, so he knew them really well as people. And he sensed that there was a change that had come over them as he dropped in on the Sgt. Pepper sessions. And he's talking to the LA Times earlier this year. He said, you realize that everybody was living separately. They didn't play live anymore. So all they did was meet in the studio. It was a different sort of atmosphere. And by his account, Revolver really marked the last truly unified push as four friends before being Beatles became just one of the things that they did rather than who they were. And George himself would later say of this period, I was losing interest in being fab at that point. And Giles Martin, when I interviewed him for People Magazine a few weeks ago, he told me, the reason why the Beatles were good is because the four of them made the most extraordinary sound. They did it consistently in different styles, and Revolver's a great example. What's happened with Paul over the last few years, and I don't think he'd mind me saying this, is that he's realized that the Beatles were the best band he was in. And it took him a while to accept that. He really, really respects the others playing and what they did. He really enjoys it. He'll go, ah, listen to George's guitar. That's a great part. Or, ah, listen to Ringo's drums. It's like, you know, we were a good band. <laughs> I think we can just leave it there. <laughs> How do you feel yeah. about that, Heigl? You seem... I, I, just, I just love that quote so much. I mean, you know. It's funny leaving it on to our never knows because it is catching them at the outset of some of their more highfalutin stuff. But yeah, I mean, coming off just being this tremendous group of musicians, catching them on the cusp of becoming a group of individuals who occasionally came together to make music. Mm. Yeah, great record, man. Tunes, uh, tunes still slap, <laughs> most importantly. And it's got Yellow Submarine, which rips. It sure does. <laughs> <laughs> sure does buddy and you know four hours later after we start this now i can also <laughs> convincingly say i know what it's like to be dead <laughs> uh well folks thank you for listening we will return to our regularly scheduled programming uh next week i'm alex heigl and i'm jordan Runtog. we'll catch you next time information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 